we are teaching from the truth as best we know it. And that comes across right from the very beginning. Because I also have a very high bullshit detector. I don't teach bullshit. Neither one of us do. That because our people's minds, ears and hearts have been absolutely drowned in bullshit and misinformation and lies. And so we are doing our best to give the tools to cut through the bullshit and find out what's real and find out what's authentic and find out what's precious. Connecting to your spirit is fucking precious. Learning to live that way, that's precious. All right, well, um, we can just get started if you don't mind. Um, Let's get started. Yeah, cool. So, so Anna, Jose, thanks for being here. I'm really excited to speak with you. And thank you very much, Eric. So, I'm I'm really interested in hearing more about your your practice. What is forest yoga? How do you guys do it? Uh, you know, what what does a class look like? What is sort of what are your methods? How does it work? But also, kind of beyond that, sort of how did it come to be? Right, because it's it's a very unique way of of doing yoga and of just of engaging with with health, with wellness, with with growth. I mean, I, I think it's it's a as far as I can see, it's a very unique practice, and it's it's really interesting. So I'm I'm curious about sort of how it how it developed and how that ties into to like your lives personally, right? And I think there's you know there's there's definitely biographical elements there. And I read read your book Fierce Medicine. I loved it. It was amazing. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of really rich stories there. And so, yeah, I'm interested in, in getting into all of that and getting into, you know, sort of tips and tricks and, and things that people can apply to their daily life. But more than that, sort of getting the backstory and really understanding where does this come from? How did this practice come to be? <laughs> I'll, I'll start. It's sort of like, well, your question is a book, Eric. <laughs> That's a book. But let's let's hone it down to its its bones here. When I started yoga, I had a lot of problems. I had a, a, a lot of pain in my body, a lot of pain in my soul. I was suicidal and alcoholic, and I had been riding and training horses for many years, and so I had areas that had been hurt. You know, like when a horse rolls on top of you or kicks you or something like that. You know. A, a little human body versus a big horse body the human body takes a battering yeah. so when I started yoga I was in a lot of pain and a lot of anguish and it didn't seem to me to have much of a a place for something as 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 screwed up as I was in my mm -hmm. mind yeah you know like when I read the yoga texts it didn't really seem to address that and so I the practice was working on me and yet there's a lot that was not working there was majority of yoga that i felt there was nothing that was being addressed or touched mm -hmm. as i kept working in the yoga world i was also exploring out in other healing modalities because as a as a horse person you have to deal with healing whatever goes on whether it's a big pus ball or a a ripped tendon or whatever's going on with the horse Mm -hmm. you, know, you have to deal with it. And so I was learning how to do different healing modalities for humans because I didn't really know them. And I was going into 
therapy and past life therapy and homeopathy and naturopathy and just the different ways of healing, learning about the plants, the plants as healing. I'm not talking about the, the ceremonial plants for, for journeying. Mm-hmm. So all of those things started to, I started to weave them into yoga because the yoga to me needed to be more holistic. And at least the yoga I was doing, it felt very traditionally crusty. So as I kept working in there, I started to create poses and ways of working with poses that felt like it was kinder to my injuries and that would help me work through the injuries. And then I started, I started creating poses a lot and created the abdominals, created back strengtheners, creating things that would help rehab the shoulders or the neck or the brain. Mm -hmm. And eventually just needed to recognize like, this is different, you know, and and being brave enough to give it the name of forest yoga. One of my places of quantum leaping was when I was working in the, the medicine ways, the Native American medicine ways and ceremonial and healing ways for years it felt like there was a big split for me. I had to take time out to go to the mountain or to go into pipe ceremony. And then I'd come back and be in the yoga arena. And I realized that I was needing to bring these things together. Mm-hmm. And so I started feeling for how to weave the good medicine of the native ways into my classes. And so, for example, one of the ways was be teach a retreat and have a sweat lodge there so that people could experience that beautiful tradition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of working back and forth on how to bring ceremony. And I learned about setting an intent and brought that into the class so mm-hmm. that the class would have that potency. Mm-hmm. And then years and years and years and years went by. I started yoga in, in 1973 and started creating poses. Whew, pretty soon after that one of the things that i found in yoga which went against what i learned as a horse trainer was the the way of warming up was not really paid attention to sequencing the poses was not really paid attention to it didn't make any physiological sense to me it was just seemed really random you know like people had just like oh okay well let's do a wheel now it just had no sense and one of the things that i learned in training horses is you need to warm up deeply before you start jumping fences. You need to warm up their joints, their spine, their neck, get their brain turned on, you know? And so I brought that intelligence of sequencing into the forest yoga classes. And so every single pose has a purpose in being there and it's related to the pose that's that's coming and it's related to the poses that already happened. So they tie together like a weave and good sequencing can make a class ambrosia, bad sequencing can make it hell. You can have the same same gathering of poses and depending on how skillfully you put it together is depending on how effective or, or how dissonant it can feel. Yeah. Can we, can we stop for just a sec? Cause this is, I mean, just from what you said here, I think we could do two or three hours interview easily. <laughs> so so it's, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, two people, both with really rich lives, lots of experience, 
a lot of interesting insight. It's going to be, it's going to be a challenge to keep it short. Right. But I just, I was wondering if you could maybe zoom in a little bit on your relationship with horses. Cause you, you, you said a phrase there, like, you know, I just didn't know humans, you knew horses, but you didn't know humans. And that's, I mean, I've read your book. I, I have context to understand that, but if you could just explain that a little bit more and how, how you sort of made that transition from horses to humans and how, how that was part of your journey. Mm, well, there's a, a few pretty intense steps in that. I had moved out to the desert. I had an invitation to become a trainer in, on my own. Mm -hmm. And at, for a teenager, that was pretty heady stuff. Yeah. So th that was a really great opportunity for me to go out to the California desert, to Hesperia, as a trainer. And I was going to be training Morgan horses. And also they would be breeding and training foals. And it was, it was very enticing. Mm -hmm. And yet there was, and I did do that for a while, mm -hmm. but there was also other aspects that made it really not good at all. Like being taken completely advantage of by the person that called me out there and not getting paid and, you know, just not good things. Yeah. So in that process, I came to realize that uh, I hit like a suicidal wall basically yeah. and jumped off a cliff and then didn't die. And so in that process, that was in the desert. When I came out of that, I sorry, realized sorry, sorry. that. <laughs> what was that like? Tell, tell us more. Like what, what happened there? I just felt like I couldn't stand the pain anymore and that I had to end it. And it wasn't just physical pain. That was the least of it, though. That was pretty major. Yeah. So it's just being alive. So I had scoped out a place on a cliff up the mountain and went there. And then when I went there at, and when I went there at night, I just sat there for a while, waiting for a while. And then looking at the stars and when I finally, for probably the first time in my life, felt really peaceful, hmm. then I jumped. And I just remember seeing the stars kind of wheeling. And I do not remember hitting the ground. Hmm. I can think I remember that, but I actually don't. But I do remember coming back to consciousness and having sand in, all over, like sand in up my pants and not, just like really uncomfortable places and just like knowing that there was no sand there when I went to investigate. Mm -hmm. And so in retrospect, this was a big intervention from the sacred ones, mm -hmm. sand being in a place that it wasn't earlier that week. Sand on the ground. So, yeah. Because there was, it was it's a dried riverbed. There was rocks there when I yeah. investigated it. Yeah, I should have hit the rocks. I didn't. Mm. So in that moment of realizing I had failed to end my life, it, you know, I had to walk back to where I was staying, where the horses were, and that life was ended at that point. Something ended there. So I came out of the desert and I had this realization as if I couldn't die, 
then I needed to finally, for the first time in my life, actually choose life. And in that choice, I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking, I became a vegetarian, I sold my horse, I gave away my stuff, I gave most of my money that I'd, that I'd raised from selling my horse to my brother so he could go to school and kept a little part of it out to pay for a residential teacher training course that was being held, yoga teacher training course that was being held in Mexico at uh, Guadalajara, Rio Caliente. Yeah. And that was my jump into life. Yeah. And I had had a realization that if I really wanted to make a difference in this world, I needed to leave the animals behind because it was the humans that were creating the problems in this world, not the animals. And I was dealing constantly with the animals, like not only the horses, but I would take in stray cats and dogs and snakes. And, you know, it's like a lot of the animal world and most of the animals, neurosis, sickness, terror, injury came from humans. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I keep working with the, the results of the problem. In other words, a, a battered animal versus working with the humans that needed healing on a really profound level. And that's what I decided to go after. And then years and years later in a vision quest, I got that it was my spirit mission to help do my part in mending the rainbow hoop of the people. And that included the humans, it included the animals. I'm, I want to ask you, Jose, um, I'm sorry, Anna, it's just, I mean, we could go on forever, but I think we, we need to include both of you. <laughs> Lucky you're going to edit this anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but so th this, just taking this, this aspect of, of native traditions, right? I know you're, you're working with different native traditions from very different parts of the world, but I'm, I wanted to ask you, Jose, sort of what is your relationship to native tradition you know I, I think if i'm correct both of you are not you know uh biologically from from either of those traditions it's something you've you've learned no. kind of come into so like how do you i'm particularly interested in sort of what was the process of getting in there and then how do you balance sort of respect for the tradition as it was versus sort of hybridizing it and using it to inspire you to create something new well firstly our ceremonies are 100 percent our own, based on our own experiences, our own music. And there, if, if I could use the word, it's Indigenous inspired. Now, I've been in the Aboriginal community for 30 years. So 30 years ago, I was asked by an Aboriginal elder to form an Aboriginal company where we would unite Aboriginal tribes together the motto was one mob, all fighting a common cause. And when we started Descendants Aboriginal Dance Company, it was meant to be a vehicle where different tribes could come together in this one dance organization and share culture. It was quite revolutionary because up until then, uh, around 30 years ago, tribes just danced with each other, like their language and their group only. Mm -hmm. But in Sydney, there wasn't enough of any one particular tribe to create 
a professional dance company. These days, it's just common practice that Aborigines from all different heritages come together and share the songs and dances. So I've been with the Aboriginal people for 30 years. How, so, I, how did you get into that? Like, how did you get into a position where? Well, okay. You? <laughs> well, you know, this this is a this is a whole book in itself. I was in a, a dance company called Flamenco Dreaming. So I was working with Gypsy. See, I was a world promoter, producer, musician, healer. So I was working with the Indian community, the African community, the Aboriginal community, and then the Gypsy community. So I was a producer. So I was working with all these unique types of cultures. And I thought, hmm, what would be really interesting is formulating a group called Flamenco Dreaming. And what I did in Flamenco Dreaming, I, my brother, who was a, a proficient didgeridoo player, I put him in this Spanish gypsy ensemble. I don't know if you know much about flamenco, but from yeah. Spain, you would probably know it. But anyway, we created a world music orchestra having uh, Bulgarian bagpipes, African percussion, didgeridoo, Spanish dances, and then one of my Aboriginal friends, who is uh, quite a legend in Australia, his name is Sean Chilborough. I said to Sean, look, Sean, I'm putting this amazing show together called Flamenco Dreaming. And I said, I need a dancer. And he said, what do I need to dance? And I said, I'm going to get you to dance with gypsies. And he went, come on, not possible. So what we did is the 12-8 Flamenco beat we started creating didgeridoo rhythms around the 12-8 flamenco rhythm. Mm. And then we came up with animal moves while the flamenco moves were going. And the show was a runaway success. And from there, Sean Chilborough, who was an Aboriginal traditional man, said from the Giramay people in Queensland, asked me, invited me, could you also do this with my little dance company called Nauru Dancers? Could you produce us and get us out there? Mm -hmm. And I said, absolutely, because I love Aboriginal culture and I'm living in Australia. Mm -hmm. So I put, I, I began to direct and manage that Aboriginal group. Now, you must understand there's ceremonial dance, which is not allowed not to be touched and only happens in ceremony, then there's play dance, ceremonial dance, play dance. Mm -hmm. When we perform in public, it's all play dance. When we invite people from other cultures to do the dancing, emu dance, kangaroo dance, eagle dance, it's play dancing and it's meant for sharing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people talk about cultural appropriation, blah, 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 blah. You have to earn your stripes in this Indigenous field. And after 30 years, I have earned my stripes in the Indigenous community. And not only did we make a professional company, we toured almost 50 countries and performed at some of the world's biggest events. And we also, in 2004, for the UNESCO United Nations, we won first prize 
in an indigenous dance competition called the World Cultural Open in South Korea. And we were acknowledged in Australia when our website became part of the national heritage in Canberra, Canberra being the nation's capital. So when I came into Forest Yoga in 2014, look, I was already doing yoga. And I thought that the yoga industry was, could be much, much better. Like it was a little bit cheesy, a little bit new agey. And coming from a, you know, a traditional Aboriginal background, uh, you know, working with, with traditional Aboriginal stuff, uh, I just thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if we turned yoga into a corroboree, like a ceremony, like we have two hours with the students, we have two hours, and as well as the yoga poses, why don't we do some smoking and smudging, some prayers, some chanting, and make the two hours a spiritual experience much, much deeper than just the poses. Anna had already spent uh, years and years with the Native American people. So when she came to Australia and we, we met in an elevator, actually, I was asked to do an Aboriginal ceremony for Anna. So I got the cultural people in my group and we did an Aboriginal ceremony for Anna when she came to Sydney. Of course, when we say ceremony, it's ceremony you're allowed to use, which is play dancing, which is just an indication of what ceremony is without being the real stuff, if you understand. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would like to understand better. Um, like when you, when you say introducing ceremony into yoga with, with smoking, smudging, chanting, these things, what, imagine I have no previous experience. I just have no idea. And I'm in my mind, you know, I'm putting myself in the mind of my hypothetical listener. I'm in my, my nice, sexy yoga outfit. I'm doing my poses. And all of a sudden someone starts chanting and like, you know, burning strange plants and it's like what's going on here you know so so I'm, I'm trying to understand like in my mind how do you guys combine those what does what what is ceremony to you and how does yeah. it combine with the yoga yeah well firstly i was also work as an artistic director mm -hmm. so i look at the two hours in a yoga class and go ah you know we can make this two hours like a much more meaningful and healing experience so we're not chanting all the way through we it takes a little while to create presence like when you bring the yoga students into the room they are they, they just can't stop thinking fidgeting so we use the opening five to ten minutes i'm also a keyboard player too so i play classical sort of what I call dream time music. So I, I, I give the student time to come into presence. So we begin with a beautiful piano classical dream time piece mm -hmm. and let a meditation. And at the same time, Anna begins a smoking ceremony. Mm -hmm. Then we do a prayer while the people are in meditation. 
and then we begin the pranayama okay. and so, we so just there look okay i get music we're getting into the mood then we jump to smoking ceremony what is that a smoking uh, well there's many different types of smoking ceremonies happen in many many different countries in my country we begin every single ceremony or performance with a with a smoking or smudging ceremony anna can explain the ceremony that she does because there's one that comes from australia there's one that comes from america mm-hmm. and then there's you know dozens of other ways we've been we've been in a lot of different ceremonies in our lives and then mm-hmm. the important part of ceremony is how do you incorporate it and then carry it forward so mm-hmm. what we teach and what we do is what is a personal expression of it so it's smoking ceremony it's not this kind of smoking we take <laughs> we take sage cedar sweet grass or i really love the copal incense because it it burns more easily like cedar and sage and stuff goes out or sometimes like turns into a big smoke bomb. The see the copal incense is easier to control in a room. Mm-hmm. So when Jose begins the music and we give them the instructions of like how to listen and what's going to happen with the smoke ceremony, me and my assistants will go around and we'll brush and smooth the electromagnetic field. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I am playing piano, creating a an atmosphere to bring presence into the neurotic thinker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like mm-hmm. we have a fan or you can just use a hand. We run it through the smoke. So it cleans there and then we clean the field. And it's actually very soothing to feel this, this air washing you and just mm-hmm. a, a little bit of time on each person and then on to the next. Mm-hmm. So that's the smoking ceremony. It's a smoke cleansing, smoke blessing. So after the music and smoking, we come together in prayer and then we offer a chant to the ancestors. We do an invocation where we call on the good spirits and ancestors of the land to join this yoga ceremony. So it's much more, this is not a physical workout. This is a yoga ceremony and I create the ceremony. I'm a piano player guitar player, drummer, and also shaman. Uh, Anna is also a shaman. So we've combined two lifetimes of experience into a yoga class. Mm -hmm. So by the time we start breathing and stretching, we have already taken the yoga student out of their head and into a place that we use in ceremony called the second attention. The first attention is the neurotic thinker, the person that is always judging, observing, comparing, and that's not good. That part of the ego needs to be calmed before the yoga starts. So by the time the yoga starts, the majority of students are in a much better place. Some people's minds (laughs) can never be fixed. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just but, imagining, you know, if someone if someone doesn't come with a sort of background understanding, the the reaction to someone calling in the spirits of the ancestors could be diametrically opposed. I mean, to some people, it's like, oh, great, the ancestors are here. And to other people, it's like, holy shit, where am I? Like, what's going on? And it might even get that that first attention even more active of like, 
Yeah. Know, getting on well, unfortunately, we, we like, I mean, what we do is what we do. And uh, we don't, uh, what we believe and what we do is what we do and what we believe. The student's neurosis or the student's opinions about anything is not going to alter what we do. Mm-hmm. So if people are religious or whatever and, and see Indigenous, you know, a lot of people have uh, demonised Indigenous ways and Indigenous, you know, acknowledging the ancestors. See, in Australia, acknowledgement is of utmost importance. So in any Australian event, white, black or racial, uh, uh, Asian, it could be any event, the acknowledgement comes before each event Mm -hmm. to acknowledge the ancestors, past, previous and even those to come. So acknowledgement is a critical part. And I brought acknowledgement into the yoga community. Mm -hmm. So if, if I'm in America... I acknowledge that we are on traditional Native American land and we acknowledge that this is, was, always will be Native American country and we acknowledge the forefathers and we then do a chant to the forefathers acknowledging that we are doing a ceremony and yoga on their land. Mm -hmm. This is the depth of the yoga that Anna and I do. And as I said, when I came into the yoga community, it was very wishy-washy. It was very new age. It was, it it just needed uh, some sort of grounding. And Anna was already doing it. I thought, wow, what a great ally uh, Anna is. What could happen if Anna and I got together? What could yoga become? Mm. And now we've been together eight years we're just about to embark on our 25th teacher training. And what we give people is truth speaking, stuff from the heart, stuff from firsthand experience, two lifetimes, Mm. two lifetimes of firsthand knowledge. So you get tools of healing, tools to vision quest, tools to look to evolve yourself because we think learning how to evolve oneself is just the sexiest game ever it's just an amazing thing to do we teach people the tools and the ceremonies that we've created around how to connect to your spirit and so when when i talked to you earlier about setting intent Mm -hmm. the intent we set the intent and it could be depending on what we've called the class that is the intent it could be embodying spirit or it could be working with your back injury. I mean, we work all the way through that. And then throughout the entire session, we are redrawing the attention into whatever the intent is. So if it's about healing your low back, since so many people are injured there, you learn how to use the pose to help your back heal. You learn how to get your breath in there to move out the pain chemicals and the congestion and whatever the problem is and bring in healing energy. Mm-hmm. You make a difference in one class. Mm-hmm. And then we go into that sequencing aspect as the poses are sequenced very carefully. We test drive every single class we teach. We do it mm-hmm. sometimes many times yeah. before we actually teach it to make sure the sequencing is as, as gorgeous and masterful as possible. Yeah. And sometimes we have music healing classes and I have a whole bunch of, 
macro courses which I've created. I bought veganism to forest yoga. When I came into forest yoga in 2014, it was not a vegan vehicle. It's now become a vegan vehicle. And I teach veganism as part of yoga, ahimsa, the practice of non-violence, which means non-violence on the dinner plate as well, mm-hmm. of killing, torturing, and brutalizing animals. So also music healing. We have sometimes music healing classes. So basically, Anna and I have got together everything we've ever learned and known. We're bringing it together as a synergistic collision. When I met Anna in 2014, she was exhausted and she'd been hospitalized a number of times. I could see that she needed help. She not, not only healing help, but, but she needed help. Mm. And by being together, having two teachers, to, touring two people together, we are going to get another 10 or 15 years out of Anna, longevity. <laughs> so, and that was, that was the plan. Like the way things were going, they were just touring Anna from one place to the next by herself. You know, uh, it's not a healthy way of life. Like, I mean, Anna and I have been touring now for eight years. And every Monday, we're in a different country. We were up until 2020. Every Monday, we were in a different country. We'd be in Spain one Monday and then Moscow the next Monday, Beijing the next Monday, London the next Monday, Greece the next Monday. And I just thought, we, we cannot keep this going. And now we see why bands or anything that gets on the road eventually uh, is self-destruction happens no matter what sort of lifestyle you're living. But as a duo now, we both carry that burden. I'm trying to just put myself in that space. If I'm coming into a class, I have the music, the ceremony, I'm sort of connecting to my body into presence. Then I start going to, to poses, into the flow. And it's, imagine I have lower back pain, right? So it's, are you... I imagine you're working on the, the physical aspects, the emotional aspects, psychological aspects. Like what is what does that look like for someone who's who's there just maybe, I don't know, three years of incredible back pain. I don't know what to do. How do you work with me? What what happens there? Okay. Sit up. Do that now. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, just feel like when when there's pain, we collapse around it and that makes it worse. You put pressure into the discs, you, the blood and the oxygen can't get in there. So you need to make space in there, literally open up, take one of your hands and put it on where the pain is on your back. Now focus your breath and inhale and balloon your breath right into where that pain is. So the musculature of your back moves into your hands. Mm -hmm. And then as you exhale, lengthen up a little more and just feel for starting to move the, the grabbing and the congestion out. So just sitting here starting because you have to make those breath pathways into the area that needs help. So breathing using the Ujjayi breath, which is that whispering breath, kind of like when the wind goes through the cedar trees. 
So making that sound and bringing it into your back pain, do this now. When exhaling, pull your belly in because your abdominals need to help with the breath. So you start with sitting, getting the breath pathways opening there. And even if you don't get to your injury, you get closer and closer. Then we start doing poses in a way that helps you refocus and use the poses to start massaging that area. And probably about every other pose, every third pose, we're bringing your attention back there in case you spaced. So it's one, it's your responsibility to put your attention there. But two, as a, whether you're an advanced yoga student or a beginner, your attention needs to be trained and it won't be able to stick with it very long. So you need the external help of us saying, okay, deep breath into your back now. Mm-hmm. Or as you bend forward in sun exercise, pull your belly in to support your back or curl down or whatever, you know, modifications we're giving you to support your back as it's learning a new way of moving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Anna's down level, leveling all the time, whether she's working with knee injuries, shoulder injuries, lower back, she's always giving the students a different option. Mm-hmm. And then just recently, uh, Anna and I did a, a training in Bali. Actually, it was 2019 when the world was uh, a different place. And we had surfers, champion surfers, who came to us. With One had a broken back uh, that fell from a 100-foot wave, apparently, in Portugal. Uh, they actually made a documentary called The 100-Foot Wave on HBO. So these professional surfers came to Anna and I. One had a broken back. One had a neck injury. One had a shoulder injury. And in the documentary, you get to see Anna and I working with them. And another thing that we used was music therapy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know much about music therapy, but in Aboriginal culture, it's been going on for 60,000 years. That singing into people's bones or playing the didgeridoo. The didgeridoo is the world's oldest woodwind instrument. Mm-hmm. And what we were doing was firstly, we relax the people and get them out of the the neurotic state of mind. And you come to the place of second attention because at first attention, nothing can happen. While the thinker is dominating, uh, healing cannot happen. So you need to relax the thinker into the second state of attention, which is like the meditation state, if, if I can be clear there. And then we start playing the didgeridoo into the injury. Mm-hmm. And people ask, well, what, what is happening when you are playing the, the didgeridoo into the person's broken back or broken back that is healing? And what's happening is the electromagnetic field around the human, usually where the injury is, there is a, a pattern uh, which is... When someone's pattern is broken, it's a bit like uh, the aura of the earth. Uh, What do we call that? Ozone layer. Yeah, the ozone layer. When there's a hole in the ozone layer, there can also be a hole in the electromagnetic field. Mm -hmm. So when we're playing in that, the electromagnetic pattern begins to restore. Now, there was a whole lot of experiments about how music healing works 
and why sometimes music healing was curing cancer uh, better than chemotherapy. And scientists said, oh, it's a placebo effect, mm -hmm. that the person is relaxed and believing that they are getting better or they're relaxed listening to the music. Mm -hmm. So Aboriginal people, medicine people, for 60,000 years have used singing into the bones or playing instruments into the person's, the very depths of their soul as a healing. Yeah. Now, this was all accepted right up until the beginning of the 1900s. And at the beginning of the 1900s, Indigenous ways, herbalist, Chinese methods, all traditional medicine was disregarded around 1915, 1916. It was all disregarded when the big pharmaceutical people started muscling into the medical profession. And all Indigenous ways were considered, uh, what could you call? Invalidated. Well, they were invalidated. Yeah. Uh, we know better that the power of music, love, touch, human touch mm -hmm. can work miracles. The same way that a prayer, people, sometimes prayers work. What's mm -hmm. that? What are dreams? My people have a place called the dream time. And the dream time is like your common dreams, but we enter the dream time consciously. So when we come into the dream time, we look at our hands and feet and go, and we see that they're disfigured and we know we're, we're in the dream time and we look for problems and solutions in the dream time because ultimately dreams are wiser than men, they're wiser than people and there is no explanation why anything is possible in a dream. We can create alternative landscapes, people, places we create a whole world of our own in the dream time so my people in australia have gone to the dream time for solutions for a very long time and that's the reason we use prayer music smoke and we have profound words that we do in the teaching as well mm -hmm. it's a physical and a subliminal experience all coming together in two hours. But we do explain to the people taking these classes that yes, each class begins with this particular thing. Yeah. And then there is, there is a very beautiful, intense workout. So the people that they, their, their, their yayas are just dominant. It's like all that gets smoothed out. And then we end the classes so like there's a there's the warm they're setting the intent then the pranayama then the warm-up and then the hot part and then some apex poses you know some fun challenging eight poses and then the warm down and the down regulating of the nervous system and the brain and then jose brings him into a dreamtime shavasana where he plays another kind of music that helps that electromagnetic field reorganize in a more harmonious way mm -hmm. and people are rinsed clean and they're they're much happier when they leave and what all goes on inside that's very personal mm -hmm. but they're 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 wrung out 
they're rested, they're recharged, and more centered and more in their authentic self to deal with the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we end with a piano, basically a piano savasana of beautiful, classical, etheric piano playing. And then we end with the prayer that we started the class with, which ties the whole experience together. Okay. Okay. So we can talk endlessly about it, but it is such an experiential event that the best thing to do is to take it. Yeah. To do it. Yeah. No, I was, I was, I was going to say that as well. I mean, I, I, full disclosure, I grew up in California in a pretty sort of liberal area. And for many years, I would not have my, my like gut reaction would have been, this is bullshit. Like no fucking way I'm leaving the conversation. And over time I've opened myself up to, to these possibilities through experience, right? It's like the science can be there or not, but ultimately, you know, that, that doesn't matter. What's, what's important is, do you feel it, you know, and, and just taking that, that little step of, of trying it and seeing for yourself. It's like, okay, maybe it's electromagnetic fields. Maybe it's something else, who knows, but something's happening and I can feel it in my body, you know, and there's, I read just a few months ago, there's some research about uh, purring cats. And if, if you have a purring cat on your lap, when you have like a broken bone, for example, that bone heals more quickly. The research, yeah, absolutely. they didn't know, you know why, you know, is it vibrations? Is it, you know, who knows why, but you know, there, there's evidence there. Yeah. That, and, that's why we got to get rid of the neurotic thinker because the neurotic thinker knows nothing. Look, ultimately we live in an infinite universe and people think, Oh, wow. How could anyone be healed with music? You know, uh, there's infinite possibilities mm-hmm. and that's why we have to get the neurotic thinker out of the yoga class. Like, I mean, when I came into yoga, I used to think yoga was wishy-washy, you know, uh, really cheesy, especially American classes, very cheesy. And I just thought, yeah, I'd I'd been in the indigenous business for for over 20 years Mm -hmm. then. So that was reality. These indigenous people, that was reality. That was truth. You know, and it was white middle class society that thinks everything's bullshit and where's the science? I thought that was bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know, the indigenous people was the reality and this white middle class, oh, that's bullshit. That, you know, that's bullshit. That's conditioning. Mm -hmm. That's people that are conditioned by their Walt Disney films and their television and media and uh, full science and this is what Anna and I are up against when we come into a yoga class. But now it's not so much a big deal because so many people know about forest yoga. They know that they're going to get a spiritual experience. Music is real. A smoking smudging ceremony is real. A prayer is real. There's nothing wishy-washy about it. Acknowledging that we stand on Native American country is real. Mm-hmm. There is no wishy-washy. It's all real. We are teaching from the truth as best we know it. And that comes across right from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Because I also have a very high bullshit detector. I don't teach bullshit. Neither one of us do. Mm-hmm. That Because our people's minds 
ears and hearts have been absolutely drowned in bullshit and misinformation and lies. And so we are doing our best to give the tools to cut through the bullshit and find out what's real and find out what's authentic and find out what's precious. Connecting to your spirit is fucking precious. Learning to live that way, that's precious. And there's so much to learn about music healing. We're still trying to learn the the magnitude of this magic and, and how it's worked for Indigenous people for so many thousands of years that the medicine man or medicine woman would always try to sing the person well. Or in Christian or Orthodox religion, you pray the person well. And there seems to be some sort of magic in prayer and song, which we don't yet quite understand. Anna and I just learned yesterday that mushrooms are actually singing all the time. Someone sent us a National Geographic film of mushrooms that were connected to a little amplifier. Mm -hmm. And the mushrooms were actually singing they're emitting the sound and it's like you know the the great mystery we live in the great mystery and we need to open our eyes from our our very narrow perceptions and perceive more of what we live in and that would be a a very heartening experience for people and the unit aboriginal people say universe uni means one verse means song one song so When I heard that Native American people used to listen to the trees sing, I used to think, I wonder what that really is like. But then when we saw the scientific experiments of the yesterday of the mushrooms amplified and were making this heavenly jingle sound, I thought, wow, it really is one song. The universe, it's because we don't understand it, of course, the neurotic thinker thinks just everything is bullshit except for themselves. Mm. But there is no, there's no way, that's the prison of the mind. It, we have a choice to stay with that neurotic thinker or deny that a, a neurotic thinker to dictate our reality and, and, and what we do. That's why we always try to come underneath the mental clutter because nothing can happen at the mental clutter, and even all the Indian gurus and uh, people tell us that the observer needs to be, uh, we need to lose the observer, or the observer and the observed need to become one. And what that really is, we're still investigating. How does, so let me just add one thing, it's like, just, just for the people that are like in the bullshit, bullshit mind, mm-hmm. it's like this is the tools to change your life. So you change the way you eat. You change the way you absorb information. You start filtering out the garbage. Like in our media, there's a lot of garbage that pollutes us. Mm-hmm. Stop taking in poison. Stop it. Stop mm-hmm. eating and drinking poison. Don't poison yourself anymore. That's going to change your perceptions. Yeah, so so I guess I'm personally I'm really interested in the breath as uh, a tool for yeah getting out of the monkey mind or you know consciousness level one whatever it is connecting with the body and to me the most compelling thing about it is that 
the results are immediate. Like, you know, there, there are lots of scientific studies more and more, but it's, you don't need those because within 30 seconds, you realize something's happening here. Right. And so, so for me, I do, I do a lot of work with, with extreme cold, extreme heat. Um, also with, with Tantra as well, moving sort of internal energy, using the breath, using visualization. And it's a kind of thing where with three to five minutes of instruction, you can see real tangible results in your body. Mm. You know, you can, you can feel warm in cold water. You can cool down in a hot sweat lodge. You can move your sexual energy and have a completely different sexual experience. You know, and, and as far as I know, there isn't really a good scientific explanation for that. Um, and that's okay. You know, I mean, science often comes long after the actual lived results, you know, and you see that again and again, you know, with, uh, I think it was, I was born in 1984 and until then it was actually illegal for women to run the marathon in the Olympics because there was scientific evidence that their uterus would fall out, you know, and then a woman did it and there's like, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess they can do it. You know, and you see that in, in free diving as well, you know, that if anyone goes down to, to hundred meters, their lungs are going to collapse, they're going to die. It's impossible. And now people are going down, you know, way, way, way past that, you know? And so, I mean, I, I, I believe that science can be very useful and we're, I mean, we're, we're speaking over the internet. That's incredible. Yeah. You know, that's, Look, I mean, it's, science, it's, we, we need science to measure an immeasurable universe and an immeasurable consciousness. And unfortunately science cannot measure consciousness. Maybe one day it may be able to, but for now science has no, you know, scholars have no understanding of life. Mm -hmm. You know, they we can measure, weigh, we can measure, measure and weigh things and gauge things, but it doesn't bring an understanding of life. Mm -hmm. And people who trust the science, well, they're going to be bitterly disappointed because the science only knows if you could compare it, just a grain of sand on a beach, that's what science understands. It's immeasurable. Uh, it, yeah. it's, it, it's impossible. Well, yeah, and it's a measure of, or a matter of context as well. It's like if you want to design a bridge, science is, you know, that's great. If you want to, you know, research, I don't know. Uh, I mean, there's there's millions of examples, right? When it's it's a perfect yeah, tool. You of know, course, have, we need science. You can create science. a controlled experiment. You do your research, you get your results, you know, technology develops. That's great. But when we're That's talking great. about my relationship with my body, my relationship with my emotions, my being, that's a realm that science so far doesn't have a lot to say about. And it has to be experiential. It has to be trying things and just opening your mind enough to, to at least try. And then yeah. you'll see if it works for you or if it doesn't. I mean, I think there's, there's no tool that works universally for everyone. You know, and it's, yeah, I think it really is a matter of, of exploration and, and, and sharing our tools and, and learning from one another and, and, and just sort of changing that, that attitude, right. Of what's right. What's going to work. Is this safe? Is it okay to, I'm going to explore, I'm going to find out this is my body. This is my life. So when you were talking about breathing hmm. in our classes, we have pranayama in the beginning, near the beginning of the class to mm -hmm to get that turn on, to get the, the brain alert and nourished because so many of us don't breathe well. And especially with our masked population now, the breath is impeded 
And when people wear a mask, they're breathing the toxicity that their body is trying to throw off because it's caught by the mask and then you breathe it back in. So there's this whole oxygen deprivation that goes on. And when you need to learn, when you need to break pattern, when you need to evolve, you need that deep breathing. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're constantly coaching people mm-hmm. to change their breathing. So it's whoever is listening now, if you change your breathing now, breathe deeper, breathe more fully. So inhale until you're completely full, spreading your ribs sideways. And when exhaling, pull the belly in so you get completely empty. It's a hundred thousand times a day. Remind yourself, oh yeah, let me take a deep breath or six. That will start changing everything. I don't care what you believe. Without breath, you're dead meat. That's very basic. You're dead. You change your breathing. You change your life force. You change the way you think. You change the way you heal. You change the way that you digest food or information breathe deeply and at that very basic level past your beliefs something begins to shift because you've changed your breathing you are learning to work with the prana the life force Mm -hmm. of your very being because without breath you don't have life yeah Yeah, just back on the subject of science some of the elders that I spoke to in the central desert of Australia, and I think a lot of us will will agree that technologically and scientifically, the human race has come so far. It's come incredible with AI and all this latest nanotechnology. However, spiritually, he, he said, have we really moved even one centimetre? And I said, what do you think? And he said, no, we have not. We haven't moved one centimeter spiritually, but scientifically and technologically, we've moved thousands and thousands of miles. Mm -hmm. So when people say, oh, yes, we have moved spiritually, they say, well, there's still wars going on. There's still, look what's happening in the world right now. You know, people want to see other people dead because there's a difference of opinion now and this is what's happening worldwide which underlines the fact that the human race has not moved one centimeter not one centimeter spiritually mm-hmm. just technologically and scientifically we've moved yet we are still worshiping and idolizing science and at that fake science mm-hmm. fake science mm-hmm. but of course science can be a brilliant thing as well. You know, we, we this internet and like you said, building bridges. But the problem is that the human race is broken. And it's the worst break ever is right now. And we need to find how can we restore this? What can we do as yoga teachers? What, what can we really, really do? What we've seen, and that before this whole most recent breaking in the human race, is that people are spiritually bereft. And so they try to fill this gaping hole inside of themselves with their addictions, whether it's with their pornography, sexual addictions, or food, or drugs, or 
you know, constantly feeding their mind through the media and movies and all this stuff, there's like this big gaping hole inside. So it's easier for most folks to numb out because it's so damn uncomfortable. And what's missing is their connection to their authentic self and in finding a purpose in being alive besides just go to work, come home, watch TV or get on the computer, eat, go to sleep, get up, do it again. There's, you know, it's like learning to do your work and learning to pay bills. These are good things to learn, but you're here in this life to do more than pay bills. And so for people to actually begin to quest for what is the purpose of my life? What is this sacred focus that I can use as the touchstone or the heart post that my life will revolve around? Mm -hmm. So like we have a spirit pledge of mending the rainbow hoop of the people. And it's a good way of measuring one's actions is this helping mend the hoop of the people or is it helping destroy it? You know, is my hatred, anger, this, that, the other, is this helping or is this hurting? And if it's, if it's actually moving me away from what I consider sacred and precious, then am I brave enough to stop doing that action? Am I brave enough to stop doing my own toxic actions and shift my behavior, shift my thinking? This is part of what is ours to learn. Mm -hmm. What is the hoop of the people? Sorry. The hoop of the people is all of the peoples of this planet, Mm -hmm. the humans, the different colored humans, the red, the black, the white, the yellow, the mixes making like a rainbow hoop. But all of the the people of the planet includes the four-legged, the winged ones, the crawlers, the insect world. Without the insects, we'd be in deep trouble. You know, the animal people, the winged people, those are all part of the people. Mm-hmm. And where this became evident for me as a spirit pledge is in studying Black Elk's life work. And at a certain point, Black Elk, who's a Lakota medicine man and elder, he said, the rainbow hoop of the people has been broken. Mm-hmm. When he saw the tribes being slaughtered by the white people or being given pox infected blankets and being given alcohol and the children being stolen and people being jailed or beaten or killed for practicing their sacred ceremonies. You know, the the people were broken again. This has happened many times. And what became evident for me as a broken person having to really work to connect to my spirit because I didn't even believe like spirit. Oh yeah. Bullshit. Right. I was in that sort of place, but to actually start to quest for what is my spirit and how to connect. And that became an integral part of what we do in our work is giving people the tools to connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, once you've had a firsthand metaphysical experience, then you go, aha, a thousand books couldn't have pre- prepared me for this metaphysical experience. Some people need to take the ayahuasca and all that other stuff. And other people, it happens naturally. And the reason we created ceremony in the first place, the history, if you go back into the history of ceremony, mm-hmm. it was created for this very thing to find communion with God. And I don't mean just in the head, I mean in the head emotions, body, spirit, in all ways, to to have a first-hand metaphysical experience is 
better than than reading a thousand books. And this is the reason that Anna and I are bringing ceremony to yoga, just to get people closer to God or the great spirit or whatever you want to call her this morning. We've got two hours or two and a half hours in our classes with them. And what can we do to make them walk, leave the classroom with a spring in their step and to to, to bring their own hope into their their life? So on the the rainbow hoop, it's all of the people's learning to live together in a balanced way, in a beauty way. Mm -hmm. And one of the teachings that modern day humans need to learn from the indigenous people is the traditional indigenous teachings teach you how to walk your life in a way that is in balance and in communion with nature and with your own spirit needs and with each other. And we've lost that. And this is one of the valuable tools that we can learn from these older cultures. Yeah. And this is also, we, so we bring in how to vision quest on the mat, for example, we breathe in, we teach how to go inside and hear your own heart or heal your own back or quiet your anxious mind Mm -hmm. so that you can quest for answers at a deeper level because that anxiousness and the worrying mind will not come up with answers. Mm-hmm. As hard as it's trying, it doesn't work that way. So for the deeper answers, for whatever problems you're dealing with, they need to come from a deeper place inside. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, I mean, I have to say that the way we work sounds very similar. I mean, I'm using different tools, but I also use a lot of yoga, a lot of breath, sound, not that I'm, I'm creating, but just music, um, heat, cold, but a very sort of similar way of getting past the the calculating, worrying mind, getting into the body, getting into deeper parts of the brain, deeper parts of the self that in my understanding and from my training, my background, it's very difficult to differentiate for me between psychological and spiritual, right? I, I don't know where the bright line is between I'm going into my past traumas, my fears, my neurological patterns, my nervous system patterns, and rearranging that and healing that, or I'm connecting to something that could be called spiritual, something bigger, bigger than the self. And my, my perspective there is always, as, as a human, I don't, I don't know if I could ever really differentiate between those two, because by definition, when I'm connecting with that, whatever it is, it is something that my rational mind can't understand. So at that point, it's it feels bigger than me because it's bigger than my ego, it's bigger than my rational mind. But is that deeper within? Is that a sort of my reptilian intelligence, my epigenetic inheritance? Is it something bigger than me in the sense that it's a spirit that's connecting all of us together? Honestly, I don't know what the difference is because if you go deeper and deeper, the deeper you go, the more closely you are connected with everyone else who has that same, you know, epigenetic history or evolutionary history or, you know, call it a spiritual connection, whatever it is. It seems to me just like two different ways of speaking about the same thing, which is this process of letting go of the thoughts, letting go of the worries and connecting with a sort of deep essence that 
we only have access to through our bodies, through our breath, through the sort of release of, of the thought. I think the psychological studies are necessary and useful, mm-hmm. but they are actions to take. We work a lot with people's anxiety and it's like, I see anxiety as a call for action, for correct action. If I'm fearful, it's like, we'll start finding out what are you afraid of and what can you do to alleviate that fear? You know, what can you do? So if you have a pattern that has been set in place by years of abuse, then how do you begin to dismantle that so you can live free of that pattern, live in in a way that is not dictated by your abuse. Mm-hmm. But, and so but, you, have, you have to study, I think, you have mm-hmm. to study what is the actual bars of this prison in order for me to dissolve this. Right. And it's then, quite- you know, embodying spirit is not the same as studying your psychology or studying neurosis, but it's like if you bring your spirit into doing these things, you'll be much more successful. So, but you can you can go into any university and look at the people that are in all these great psychology classes or the science classes and you look and it's like, is there spirit with them? Mostly no, because they've been disconnected. So it's different actions, bringing your spirit in. You choose to call your spirit in or to connect to wherever it's been hiding and then go through your yoga. It's a whole different experience. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as your mind starts blah, blah, blahing, it's like you've you've lost the connection. It's like, oh, I just blew it. I didn't come back. You know, learning how to come back. And then focusing a mind that is more highly trained, more honed to be able to research what is going on. What is the problem? What is the injury? What is the heartbreak or the anguish? What can I do about this? And when the whole world is in such stress and anxiety well what can i do about the world it's like well can you move the fear out of your own body right now with deep breathing with your yoga practice with walking in nature what can you do to stop flooding yourself with fear what are you capable of today so these these steps are very essential I, I feel a lot of people think like oh like when i take on a spiritual life i'm just going to sit and commune with God and say, good luck with that. You need to clear the shit out of the way so you can perceive something else. Both of these things are very important work and I consider it spiritual work is to clean it up. It's like in yoga, it's called the yamas and niyamas. Clean it up, clean up your actions. Mm -hmm. Clean up your actions with your food, with your interactions with yourself, with your family, with the community. Clean it up. Live, weave, and live a life that you're proud of. Mm-hmm. That will help you tremendously. And how does how does spirit play into that? Like, what does what does spirit mean to you? Because that, I mean, everything you just said, I think I could understand without invoking spirit. Without like my, I don't have a, a strong connection to any native or indigenous indigenous traditions, and I I work with plant medicine with with ayahuasca, but in in my own way. You know, connection to spirit isn't an indigenous thing. Mm -hmm. Like when Anna and I have connection to spirit or firsthand metaphysical experience or communion with God or whatever we want to call her, 
it's got nothing to do with Indigenous people or Indigenous uh, uh, sayings or, or it is a personal experience connection to spirit. And sometimes there's when we enter these realms, these beautiful realms of the spirit, the little me has to wait at the door. Mm -hmm. So we've got to put the little me aside or you can call it the lower ego or whatever when we come into these beautiful uh, dream. Uh, we call it the dream time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the dream time is a state of consciousness that we receive when we are ready. It sort of, it, it, it's like love finds you when you're ready or truth finds you when you're ready. And people say, well, Jose, how do I get ready? Well, first of all, you've got to, first of all, like a snake, start peeling away the layers of deceit. Because with those layers of deceit, that is actually blocking the connection to the spirit. And people say, what are these layers you're talking about? And I'm talking about belief systems and assumptions. And belief systems and assumptions prevent us. Open mind, open heart. Basically, that's it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And that when we do ceremony, Aboriginal ceremony, there needs to be an open mind and open heart. It's just such a shame that in my country in particular, 99.9% of all Indigenous language, culture, and magic and folklore is lost. Yeah. It was lost. It was a, an intentional plan by the, the conquerors, the English, to get rid of black skin, get rid of cultural beliefs, get rid of anything that was non-scientific or non religious in the traditional, in their sort of traditional forms. So we're just so lucky that not all of it was lost, but ceremony is all about connection to spirit. What, and what does that feel like? Like what, what is that for you? When you say, okay, I've connected to spirit, what does that feel like? How do you know I've connected to spirit? Well, firstly, there is the little me has been absorbed. The little me is disappeared it's 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 a tranquility it's a stillness it's a silence it's a it's a love and i get this very often i play the piano every single day and when i go into the dreaming of the piano and i i leave the thinker every time the thinker comes into my my practice i'm making mistakes and the thinker needs to get out of my way and once the thinker is out of my way, then I have the connection to spirit and the, the love and the joy that happens is, is remarkable. And it's really coming outside of the little me and going into the bigger we. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's, there's, there's I know like, Anna's got a different. There's like a sense of wonder and awe and anywhere your eye alights, you recognize that brilliant aliveness or life force, or maybe you see it energetically mm -hmm. in, now I'm gonna to go to a Lakota word, which really was a turning point for me called Wakan Skan, which means 
the great sacred that moves in all things. And for me, I could use that much more easily to connect to as the, the great sacred or the God, because I had too many prejudices on God. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, I don't want you, God, go away. I don't like your rules. I don't like your beliefs. I, I don't like it. Go away. Yeah, I'm not going into your world. But walk on scon, that which moves in all things, I could settle deep into the particle layers inside of me and feel the truth of that. I can feel that which moves in all things moving inside of me. The electrons, the protons, the space between, and the energy that fills that or doesn't fill it. Mm-hmm. When I can get quiet enough, I can feel that. That resonates as true. Even when I can't get quiet enough to feel it, I still know that it's true. Mm-hmm. So am I a part of great spirit? Am I a part of walk on scon? It doesn't matter what I fucking believe. I'm still made up of the same elements that the trees out here are, or the soils, or the animals, or mm-hmm. you. Yeah. yeah. And when I feel connected to spirit, I can I can be connecting to spirit and still be talking. Mm-hmm. But frequently, if my mind starts going off on some tangent, then I can lose that tangible sensation of connecting to spirit. For me, it's very much of a sensation. Mm -hmm. A little bit like the hair standing on end, a little bit like like when fasting, having your first drink of water, like in Sundance ceremony, when you have that first drink of water, the understanding of what a blessing water is and that we must have water to live becomes so deep it's a cellular understanding Mm -hmm. it is a different perception than the thinking way of perceiving that's one way of learning the thinking way you know and like we talk about jose was mentioning the first attention a lot of our neurosis hangs out in the first attention and in our busyness and in our doings but as you begin to develop in the second attention or develop your connection to your spirit and connection to big spirit, then your first attention comes into a different order. So your actions have more meaning and have more effectiveness. You learn how to navigate your life in a more effective way. You begin to recognize and ease your own neurosis and heal it. Yeah. Anna and I are at the stage now where we're not a slave to our thoughts you know, people think about having a drink or doing this or whatever, and then they honor that thought straight away. Mm-hmm. We begun uh, watching the thoughts like clouds drifting by in the sky. You see them. It, involuntary thought is almost impossible to control, and you shouldn't try to control it, but you don't need to engage with it or you don't need to dictate what mood you're going to be in or whatever, because the mind seems to always repeat the anguishes, the hurts and the jealousy, whatever is there. And you don't need to engage with that. You just need to be aware of it and just keep watching. And in the process of watching it and not allowing it to dictate your mood, 
then the clearing, uh, overcoming the thinker is, is one of the biggest problems that we have. So the only thoughts that I will engage with are ones of love or creativity. When I'm creating music or creating ceremonies or anything that comes from darkness or evil, you know, darkness and evil is, is not out there. It's within ourselves. So let, let's get realistic about that. And evil is a choice and it's an intention. And I choose to deny that, you know, whenever the ego wants revenge or wants to get back at an old partner or someone has spoken ill of them. Anna and I stay away from all that. And there's a lot of that going on on social media, people uh, discriminating, shaming, blaming, and doing all that stuff. And Anna and I have a choice to stay away from that stuff, and we do. So I want to I want to come in, hone in a little bit on what you were saying. It's like, to me, connecting to spirit is beyond our conversation, though we can connect with each other this way too. But it's like, it's kind of like reading a menu in some ways. You know, you read a book, you read a menu like, oh, that sounds good, that sounds good. But you can read a menu and it will not nourish you the way that you need it to. You have to eat the food. Then your body has to be smart enough to absorb what's nutritive in the food and be smart enough to shit out what you don't need. This is all part of the spiritual process. And if if we could say maybe a force yoga class is like a peak experience of connection to spirit, right? Something, I mean, the way you've described it, almost like a, a plant medicine journey, right? Of, of connection to, at the same time, to body, to self, and to something sort of beyond that. How do we maintain that connection? Like what kind of daily practices do people need? Is it just keep coming back for more classes? Is it about breathing? Is it about movement? You know, once you've had that experience, you've had that connection, you're like, wow, there's something real here. How do I maintain that in my day-to-day life? You know, Make that choice that you want to make that connection and then start exploring how do you. When you are talking to someone, how do you connect in a real way or do you just vacate and go into being artificial? To choose over and over again to come from an authentic place to connect inside is like, let me feel myself and something for this person and then choose to communicate from that way. How do I eat foods that build my luminosity, not dull me out, not hurt me? Mm-hmm. What actions do I do during the day that hurt myself and another? And can I be brave hearted enough to cut those habitual actions out? Can I start to be brave enough to seek for what is something, what is my purpose in being alive, knowing that that purpose may change? Can I make myself matter that much to start to seek out my spiritual purpose? That sounds like a matter of of awareness and integrity. And discipline as well. (laughs) Yes, and action. It's like the body needs yoga 
every day. Yeah. It literally needs it. The mind needs it. Our spirit needs it. Our spirit needs to connect. We need our consciousness to connect to our spirit in order to evolve in a wisdom way. If we don't connect or if we've been disconnected through violence or through drugs or through whatever, then it's our personal responsibility to reconnect. No one can reconnect us for us. We have to do it. Like when we teach a class, we can give all kinds of good tools, but that inner work has to happen from, for each individual. Mm -hmm. and it's essential to do this there's a lot of repetition in it as well and like i said you need discipline to, to be able to get there yeah. uh, every day anna and i do a two-hour yoga practice religiously there's a you know, two-hour piano practice there's a singing practice there is cooking and preparing meals. Uh, it's running the business. Uh, you know, so it, it, it's just more of the same stuff. The future is made up of the same stuff as the past. But, um, but fortunately, Anna and I have cleaned up the past and now our future is created in this present moment. And it's a whole bunch of good habits which feed the spirit. So we move the body, we still the mind, we express the emotions, and we feed the spirit every single day. And then again and again. And it does need some sort of discipline to do this because a lot of my friends, oh, no, no, not today. I'm going to go drinking or I'm going to, you know, have a pizza for lunch or, or whatever. And that's okay, maybe occasionally. It's never okay for Anna and I because we don't drink or eat garbage or do anything like that. We're at the age now where time is, you know, time is like gold for Anna and I right now. So every minute of the day is sacred and precious. And we invest the time into our spirit. And into our work. It's like how much of the day if this is a really good question for the people that are listening and watching is how much of the day do you waste and do you recognize that that part of that, that time is never regainable don't waste the moments of your life care enough about your life to use your day wisely to use your day to build your connection to your spirit or to build your business or to build your loving relationships. Mm -hmm. How much of the day do you in, invest in disconnect? And what if you quit doing that? And talking about time, this is an amazing interview, Eric. Thank you so much. We've been going for 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have, we have. And the thing is we could go all day, like as you can see, yeah. And it's been, an, it, it's been an amazing interview. And thank you so much for asking the right questions. No, thank, thank you both for being so open and, and just sharing, sharing from the heart. And I really appreciate that. Definitely. Yeah, but you really did ask the, the, the right questions. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I'm personally interested as well. It's not just jumping through hoops. It's, 
these are important issues to me and I'm, I'm really genuinely curious to hear your perspectives. I have a lot of respect for, for the work you're doing and, and just the depth of experience that you both have. So, and Eric, how did you get to Spain to be living in Spain? You're obviously not Spanish origins. No, I'm not. No, no. I grew up in California. I, um, a lot of ways I could answer that. I was I was doing seasonal work in Alaska, working in the summers. So I had I don't know, three to four months of, of work per year. And the rest of the time, I was just kind of traveling around the world, doing volunteer work and just living life. And uh, I came here actually to learn how to make cheese. I was living on a farm and taking care of the sheep and, and doing all that. And it was, it was a family farm. The, the wife of the the family, she got really sick and no one knew what it was, um, but they asked me to stay and, and help out. Ended up being Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. It's like an autoimmune disease where your body starts attacking your muscles. And basically from first symptoms to uh, diagnosis was about three months. From diagnosis to death was another three months. So really fast, really intense. And yeah, the, the man was left with two young kids and 150 sheep. And it was just like, all right, well, I guess, I guess I'm staying. And so I ended up staying there for two and a half years, um, just working on the farm and taking care of things and, and learning a lot about myself and really, I mean, I was outside between like 12 and 16 hours a day, just doing hard physical labor. And I think through that really forged a connection with, with myself in a way that I wasn't able to do in university or, you know, intellectual thought. You know, and I think it was, yeah, it was just formed a really strong connection for me with the place where I am. And that was sort of the main impulse for me to, to stay here. I mean, I've been here 11 years now, so and I'm Fantastic. not, I'm not working with sheep anymore. I'm, you know, in a more sort of therapeutic uh, setting, but I think, yeah, I mean, it really comes from this, this connection with, with place, with body, with the deeper sense of reality that just runs so much more powerfully than any sort of intellectual yeah. idea I could come and, up with. And Eric, how did you get to know about Anna and I? Through, well, I was studying existential psychotherapy in London and a friend of mine there who's enrolled in the course, I was always just talking about embodiment and working with the body and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, you, have you ever heard of forest yoga? I was like, no, no. And I just, I assumed it was just doing yoga in the forest. And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds nice. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just like, no, you should really check it out. I think you'd like it. So yeah, I got, I got your book, Anna, and I, I loved it. Um, it was really on a lot of levels, just seemed courageous and wise and just incredible. Um, I mean, my, my own childhood was not that tumultuous, but, you know, really can't compare tumult it was I also had difficult uh, childhood in a lot of ways and a lot of people around me went through really uh, difficult situations and different forms of suffering and abuse and and things like that and it's it's been really instructive to me to see the way that different people deal with with hardship and it takes a lot of courage to deal with it as directly as you did and I think for me more than any sort of specific pose or technique or or insight to me the value of, of your work personally is just seeing the the strength and courage with which you are willing to confront your your pain and that to me is, is inspiring and i think that that's something i i aspire to personally and i aspire to 
helping others to, to do that as well, because I, I know the value of it firsthand. And I think, I think it's the only way, you know, the, the only way out is, is through. And it really, it's difficult. There's so many distractions and there's so many, so many voices telling us that, you know, oh, you just buy this new product or learn this new skill and it'll all be okay. And, it, and, and, it's, <laughs> you know, and it's, yeah, really, I know. Oh it's my a, God. a special, a special sensibility to, to recognize that. No. Yeah, no, there's so much the bullshit out there. To, yeah. to do it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, like the quick fix, you know, just do this or just take 10 drops of this a day and, you know, everything's right. Like I said, it's a lot of repetition, a lot of hard work, and you've got to put so much time of every day into this field of consciousness. Mm-hmm. There, there is no quick fix. You and I both know that. Anna knows that. There is no quick cure. But thank you so much, Eric. We're going to get on with the rest of the day. Well, thank you both. Thank you very much. I really really appreciate it. Eric, a pleasure to meet you.